Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord, thanks be to God. Thanks be to you, Father, for your word. Lamp to our feet, light to our path. Gives light in the midst of the darkness. We thank you for the scriptures. And we thank you, Father, that you, in your kindness and in your mercy, that you've condescended, that you've stooped low to speak to us. And so, Lord, we, uh, we ask that you would um, have mercy on us as your word goes forth this morning, um, that, that Jesus would be magnified and you give 
clarity, understanding, and discernment. And as always, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, and that you would do it for the sake of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a saying that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And what that saying is meant to convey is that if you only go on outward appearances, you'll often be mistaken about what's on the inside. And that's true. But one thing that should be a better indicator of a book's contents is not the cover, but the title. So if a book title is a good one, then it can tell you in just a few words what the book is all about. And so consider examples like the following titles. Pride and Prejudice. Crime and Punishment. The Diary of Anne Frank. Right? You get a sense based on the title of what the contents of those books are. I think Christian theology books are particularly good at this. So you have books like Knowing God, The Holiness of God. I wonder what that's about. The Mystery of Providence. You know, there's a book on marriage that came out in recent years with the following title. <laughs> what did you expect? Redeeming the realities of marriage. Gives you a sense of what the book is about. Well, that question, <laughs> what did you expect, applies not only to marriage, but every area of our lives. What did you expect? You know, how often is it that the thing that actually happens is the exact opposite of what you thought was going to happen? How often does life twist and turn down roads that we never could have seen from a distance? The fact that you're sitting here right now in Alexandria, Virginia, in this building, on this day, at this hour, listening to me preach, how many of y'all could have expected that even five years ago? One year ago, five months ago, one month ago, for some of you, a week ago. Unexpected. The same can be said about the job that you have or perhaps being unemployed the place where you live, any number of things happening in your life right now, you could not have predicted just a short time ago. The longer we live, the more we learn that about the only thing that we can truly predict about life is that it's unpredictable. As one theologian famously put it, my mama always said life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get the theologian Forrest Gump. Well, this is not only true for us now, 
But it was also true for the Apostle Paul as he was writing the portion of Scripture that we just read. And so the question on the floor is, how are you and I going to respond when things don't quite go as expected? When life throws you a curveball? Now, in order to understand the context of the passage that we just read, we actually have to go back to the book of Romans. I know we just went through a long series in Romans, so some of y'all are like, again, we're going back to Romans? But it was a good series, and we're going back to the end of Romans that Garrett preached on a couple weeks back. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 22, the Apostle Paul writing to this church that he had never met before, he talks about desiring to go and spend some time with them. So this is what he says in 15, 22 of Romans. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bringing aid, bringing aid to the saints. And then further down in verse 28, speaking about going to Jerusalem to deliver the offer, offering, he says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And then further down in verse 32, he asks for prayer for his safety when he gets to Jerusalem. And he says, so that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And then after that, we got a whole chapter filled with greetings to his gospel friends, as Garrett preached about a few weeks back. So the Apostle Paul, he's going on these missionary journeys to spread the gospel, and in his mind, it was his expectation that he would go to Rome, spend time with the Romans after being in Jerusalem, and be refreshed by the church there. Well, what happens? Paul makes it to Jerusalem, and we learn about these things in Acts 21 through 28, but long after or not long after he gets to Jerusalem, he's falsely accused, he's beaten by a mob, he's arrested, he has people plotting to kill him, he spends two years in jail awaiting trial, and then he requests permission to appeal to Caesar to make his case, and so he's sent to Rome, but as a prisoner. On the way to Rome, he gets lost on the sea for two weeks. He's shipwrecked, and he gets bitten by a snake. Eventually, he makes it to Rome, and it's from Rome that he writes this letter to the Philippians. And we can turn back to our text. And here's where it gets interesting. It doesn't seem like Paul received a warm reception when he got to Rome. It's about, about four years since he's written that letter to Rome. He gets there a couple years later, and it doesn't seem like he's refreshed and greeted by the saints there. In fact, it's just the opposite. 
And so in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul makes a reference to this. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. And so what's implied there is that there were those in Rome who were actually ashamed of Paul's chains, that Paul was in prison. And so on top of everything that he had already went through, it appears that many in the church at Rome who had received his letter just a couple years before were now distancing themselves from Paul. Can you imagine how painful that must have been? And yet, after all that, he is able to say in verse 12 of our text, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. After all that, when Paul speaks about the gospel, he's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's what we've been singing about this morning when we say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Lord willing, we'll be singing about this gospel every time we gather until the Lord comes back. It's what the apostle was referring to when he said in 1 Timothy 3.16 about Jesus, he said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Speaking of Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He's talking about the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's the same gospel that he was referring to when it said, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, yea, justified, O blessed thought, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the gospel that he's talking about is being advanced. The Apostle Paul saw everything through the lens of the gospel. He had a gospel-centered perspective. And in our text today, I want us to see four areas where this gospel-centered perspective manifested itself. So the big heading over the message today is gospel-centered perspective. And then the four areas are Suffering, preaching, life, and death. A gospel-centered perspective of suffering, 
preaching, life, and death. First, suffering. Again, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let me just start off this first point by simply saying that the gospel is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. The word advance in verse 12 is a military term that literally means advancement by chopping down whatever impedes progress. And so the image there is the image of a a pioneer or an army hacking through the brush in order to get to their destination. There's no obstacle big enough or strong enough to stop the advance of the gospel. And the irony is that one thing that you would think would be enough to stop it, that is suffering, is not only, not only is it not a hindrance to the spread of the gospel, but it's actually the fuel that keeps the gospel going. Understand what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about the crusades, okay? He's not saying that the gospel spreads by Christians going out and killing people. No, he's saying that the gospel advances through the suffering and dying of God's people on behalf of others. And you should expect that because that's how Christianity started in the first place, through the death of Jesus Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so, just as Jesus used Satan's main weapon against him, so God uses sufferings in the lives of Jesus' followers to accomplish the very thing that Satan would try to prevent through the sufferings, and that is the spread of the gospel because the gospel is unstoppable. And because Paul had a gospel-centered perspective, the advance of the gospel took priority over his own comfort. You notice how the gospel spreads through Paul's imprisonment, and he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. In verse 13, that word translated imperial guard is a reference to the praetorium, which was the, uh, the emperor's soldiers. So these were the, the special soldiers who uh, were basically the emperor's bodyguards. And so the way that they did it back then in terms of imprisonment was to literally chain the prisoner to the soldier. And the soldiers would take rotating shifts. Right? So one would work for a couple hours, get off, and then another would come and chain himself to Paul. And so what was Paul doing as they were rotating their shifts? 
He was sharing the gospel. It's like he told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. He said, he said, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. <laughs> you could chain the apostle, but you couldn't chain the gospel because the gospel is unstoppable. This was affecting people on the inside where Paul was in verse 13, and it was affecting people on the outside in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So evidently, Paul had some guests who would come to him and visit with him while he was in prison. And so if, if Acts chapter 28, verse 30 is referring to the same imprisonment, then we get some insight into what Paul was doing there. It says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so there's just three quick points of application, things that we can learn from this point. One is that God has his people everywhere. <laughs> God's people are everywhere, in every arena, in business, in the government, in the private sector, in the military, professional sports, the performing arts, in social services, public schools, private schools, relief organizations, the media, in the suburbs, in the hood, in the mountains, in hospitals, in prisons. His people are everywhere. There were some Roman soldiers who needed to get saved according to the electing purpose of God. And so God determined that there would be someone there to preach the gospel to him. And it was the Apostle Paul. God has his people everywhere. Second point of application, be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. It is not an accident that you are where you are. God put you there for a purpose. Don't complain that you're not somewhere else doing something bigger or better ministry. No, the ministry that God has for you is faithfulness where you are. See where you are as an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel right there. Paul was very limited in where he could go. He was literally bound by a chain. And so yet, he was there, and there was like a revolving door of people coming to him, and he was faithful where he was, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ. And it's the same for you wherever you are, in your school, amongst your friends, on your lunch breaks, in your workplace, in the home, moms with kids. Be faithful right there, proclaiming the gospel to the little ones. Be faithful where you are. Third point of application is that because the gospel is unstoppable, 
any believer can have confidence in the Lord to speak the word without fear. Because the gospel is unstoppable, any believer can have confidence in the Lord to speak the word without fear. Look again, this, this, this word, most of the brothers in verse 14, that's, that's a reference to the family of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm sure that there's some of the people who were in that list from Romans 16, I'm sure they were among them. He's not just speaking to elders. He's not just speaking about, about clergy. He's talking about regular Christians being confident in Jesus, speaking the word without fear. And so pray that God would give you opportunities. Pray that he would give you confidence. Pray that he would give you boldness. And when he does, present those opportunities. Don't speak merely your own thoughts. Speak the word. It says they were speaking the word. That is the gospel without fear. Because it's the gospel, the word of the gospel about Jesus Christ that God uses to transform lives. Not our eloquence or our cleverness. And so Paul had a gospel-centered perspective on suffering. Our second point is that he also had a gospel-centered perspective on preaching. A gospel-centered perspective on preaching. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so you have an interesting situation here. Paul is in prison. He has visitors coming to him. And so evidently, they must have been letting Paul know what was being said out on the streets about him. And you see two elements here. You see the motive of the preachers and the message of the preachers. First, we'll talk about the motive of the preachers. So whatever Paul was being told indicated to him that some of the preachers were motivated by envy and, rival and rivalry, right? In verse 15, and then rivalry and insincerity in verse 17. So evidently, these people were jealous of Paul, and perhaps they saw his imprisonment as an opportunity for them to get the spotlight. And so here's the problem with their motives. They were looking at ministry not as a way to serve, but as a way to feed their egos. I mean, this Paul fellow was a pretty popular guy. And yet, to look at him, we find out elsewhere that he wasn't a particularly impressive person. Oftentimes, the response to him when people would read his letters and then they would see him in person would be something like, you can't be the Apostle Paul. Who, who is this guy? Who's this guy with the messed up eye, this, this little guy here, looking like a dwarf? This ain't the Apostle. Yeah, he wrote Romans and everything, but that was years ago. What's he done lately? And if he was really an apostle, why is he in chains? What's he doing in prison? 
God wants to bless the apostles. If God was really with them, wouldn't he be free like we are to preach in Rome? I'm just building my platform. People need to hear what I have to say. It says they were motivated by spirit of envy. They wanted what Paul had. I wonder if it was Jews saying things like, Paul has a low view of the law. Or was it Gentiles saying things like, uh, Paul says salvation for the Jew first and then, and then the Greek? He's just showing favoritism. But we don't know exactly what they were saying to inflict Paul in his imprisonment. But what we do know is that they were doing a good thing that is preaching Christ, but for the wrong reasons. They were doing a good thing for the wrong reasons. Now, and there's a number of examples of this very thing in the New Testament. And so in Acts chapter 8, there's a man named Simon the Magician. And it says that he saw that the apostles were performing miracles and that people were receiving the Holy Spirit as the apostles laid hands on them. And then listen to what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 18. It says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what Peter says to him. He says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. That's what was going on with these preachers. They, there was something wrong with their heart before God, with the intent of their heart. Simon had the wrong motive for wanting to do ministry. But what's interesting is, in, in that Acts 8 passage is what it says about Simon earlier in the passage when it describes him in verse 9. Listen to what it says about him. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Saying that he himself was somebody great. How many people are there that go into ministry because they want to be somebody great. But that's an oxymoron. Because in Christianity, there's only one great one, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to go into ministry in order to be great. We're to serve. We're called to serve Jesus, not make a great name for ourselves. And so let us all beware of doing ministry with the wrong motives. And this is possibly even more a temptation than ever in our age of high-profile conferences and social media and podcasts. Ministry is not a competition unless we're competing to outdo one another in showing honor to others. So that's the motive of the preachers. In verse 13, we see the message of the preachers. Some indeed preach Christ. You see it again in verse 17. The former proclaim Christ. And in verse 18, we see 
Paul's gospel-centered perspective. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. The apostle was so captivated by Jesus. He was so fixated on the glory of God that he was able to look beyond the people who were preaching to the Jesus that they were preaching about. He was so concerned with the exaltation of Christ that when he heard Christ proclaimed, it wasn't even about the person who was speaking. It was about Jesus himself. You know, in our day, there's tons of denominations, and so it can be easy to form denominational cliques and to think that God is only at work amongst us. Reminds me of Jesus' disciples. Remember the story when Jesus' disciples saw somebody that they didn't know? They saw him casting out demons, and they said to Jesus, they said, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And what was Jesus' response? He said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And that's one of the reasons why we try to be intentional about praying for other gospel-centered churches in the pastoral prayer, like we heard this morning. Let us not assume that God is only at work through our church or through our denomination or through our theological tradition. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have discernment and beware of false teachers, but it does mean that if we hear Christ and the gospel being proclaimed, we should be able to rejoice. Next, let's look at how a gospel-centered perspective shapes how we see life and death. First, life. Look at verse 18. Paul continues. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And the word here for deliverance in verse 19 is the word for salvation, which is the same word that's used in verse 28. And so it's unclear whether he's talking about salvation from prison merely or salvation in an eternal sense. But what he seems to be saying either way is that Ultimately, he's going to be all right. No matter what the outcome is of the situation, of of his upcoming trial, whether he's found guilty, whether he's killed, or whether he's acquitted, either way, he's going to be fine. You see his priority in verse 19? He says that Christ will be honored either by the way that he lives or the way that he dies. And then in verse 21, he sums it up with, what has to be one of the most profound statements in all of Scripture. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We could could do a whole series just on that verse. It is so rich. I, I can't think of a better 
more succinct Christian view of the world than this. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's here that we see the secret of Paul's joy. Remember last week we talked about uh, what your life is centered on, right? That everybody's life is centered on something. And that if we're going to truly experience lasting joy, that God must be at the center of our lives. And I mentioned that J.C. Ryle quote, for a man to be truly happy, he must have sources of gladness which are not dependent upon anything in this world. For a man to be truly happy, he must have sources of gladness which are not dependent upon anything in this world. And so you see in verse 21 that for Paul, his source of gladness was Jesus Christ himself. That's why he was able to experience true joy regardless of the circumstances. That's why he could speak about rejoicing the way that he did because to live is Christ. Now here's the thing. As we mentioned last week, Everyone has their own verse 21 philosophy. That is, everyone says, either implicitly or explicitly, to live is something. Fill in the blank. Now, for the vast majority of the world, if you were to ask them, how would you fill in the blank? To live is what? Most people would not say Christ. In fact, I think it would be any and everything but Christ for most people. To live is what? All you have to do is just look at the world, turn on the TV, and you can see what most people fill that gap in with. To live is entertainment. To live is politics. To live is Making money. To live is to have power. To live is sports. To live is to be in a relationship. To live is to pursue the American dream. To live is to be in control. To all these things and Many more, the Bible says, no, to live is Christ. How about you this morning? How would you fill in the blank? To live is. Now, I think most Christians know the right answer, so we would say, yeah, to live is Christ. But like I mentioned last week, there's a theoretical center of your life, and then there's a functional center of your life. There's a, there's a doctrinal center of your life, and then there's an in-practice center of your life. And so for many Christians, we'll sing, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. But we'll actually, in our lives, our lives will sing a different song. Our lives will say, hallelujah, all I have is my kids. Hallelujah, my job is my life. All kinds of 
false candidates to fill that space. To live is to get married. To live is ministry. To live is financial stability. To live is to be a good parent of well-behaved kids. To live is to be healthy or attractive or comfortable. To all these, the scripture says, no. To live is Christ. And you notice what Paul doesn't say here? He doesn't say to live is Christianity. (laughs) He says to live is Christ. He's talking about an actual person. This mindset to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's, it's a Christian understanding of the world. It is a philosophy, so to speak, but Jesus is not a philosophy. Jesus is a person, a person who has always existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word became flesh and dwelled among us. That's Jesus. Jesus is the person about whom it's said that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Listen to what Jesus said about himself when he was here. Jesus said, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus said, you come to me, and you don't, you don't even hate your life. You can't be my disciple. Now, now, is he saying literally hate your parents? No, that would go against God's other commands. But what he's saying is that you must love Jesus so much that your disposition towards everything else, including your life, must look like hatred in comparison to your love to Jesus. By the way, who but God himself can make such a demand? Who would be, what mere human would be so arrogant as to say, you need to hate everything if you want to follow me? Jesus is God. How can Jesus say that? How can Paul say to live is Christ? It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of his intrinsic worth and value. The scripture says that Jesus is the, inv- the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. I love it when the Bible just brag on Jesus. It is not an exaggeration to say that the universe is about Jesus. History is about Jesus. Let's let's get real specific and practical. If you're single, 
Your singleness is about Jesus. It is not a burden for you to bear until you get something better. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. And then further down, it says, the unmarried believer is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married believer is concerned about worldly things, how to please their spouse, and their interests are divided. You hear hear what he's saying there? He's saying if you're single, you have an opportunity to prove and demonstrate the worth of Jesus Christ with undivided interests. Do not allow your desire for marriage to divide your interests prematurely. You have an opportunity to demonstrate what it looks like to be married to Christ in a way that married people simply can't. We can't in the same way. And if you're married, your marriage is not about you. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your kids. Praise God for their, they're all gifts. But it's about Jesus and how he can get the maximum amount of glory. And so if you fill in that blank, to live is With anything other than Jesus, you will not experience true joy. Created things were not made to satisfy us. They were made to point away from themselves to the all-satisfying one, Jesus Christ. And it's because of what he says in the first half of verse 21 that he's able to say what's in the second half, and that is, to die is gain. And so let's finally look at a gospel-centered perspective on death. He says in verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now in this text, we see one of the clearest teachings in the Bible on what's known as the intermediate state of the believer. That answers the question, what what happens when Christians die, right? And what happens in that time in between our death and the resurrection at the end of the age? But for the Christian, to depart is to be with Christ. Just as we just heard from the scripture reading, Jesus told the thief on the cross, what did he say? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Second Corinthians 5, 7 says, away from the body, present with the Lord. So what that means is that there's no purgatory. There's no such thing as soul sleep. Christians, at the moment of death, our souls leave our bodies and are consciously in the immediate presence of the risen Christ, where we will then be with him until God raises up our bodies at the resurrection. And so for those of us who have lost loved ones, I'm speaking loved ones in the Lord, those who you knew to be followers of Jesus. While it's true that we grieve for those whom we lost, I can absolutely say beyond a shadow of a doubt on the authority of God's word 
that any believer who has left to go and be with Christ, they would not come back here if they could. They absolutely would not. Why? Because to depart and be with Christ, Eric, is far better. It's far better. And the beautiful part about it is that when we, when we die and go to be with the Lord, we're, we're immediately purified and made perfect. That is, we, we no longer have our sinful nature. So we're able to experience, experience Christ in his presence without any hindrances of sin. We're able to have appropriate affections for him. It was a dear, dear sister uh, at an old church that I went to back in Philly uh, named Miss Joyce. And Miss Joyce was one of the just sweetest believers that I've ever met in my life. She was, she was one of those sisters. She was older sister, 50, late 50s, 60s. And she had this joy about her that was just absolutely infectious. Her smile just it, just, it just drew you to her. She was the kind of person that, the kind of believer that you just like, I know she loved Jesus. And I just want to be around her because when I'm around her, I feel, I, I'm just reminded of Jesus. She's one of those kinds of believers. And Miss um, Joyce contracted cancer and, and it was, it was very, very aggressive form. Um, and so from, from the time that she got it to the time that she went to be with the Lord was a, was a very short time. And, and one, of, one of my greatest memories as a believer is in her final weeks, going to her house, spending some time opening up a hymnal and just singing hymns. And as we sang, Miss Joyce had a joy even though she was in pain, so the pain was real, the suffering was real, but she had a joy and a peace about her that passes all understanding. And in 2010, January 28th, Miss Joyce experienced the reality of this verse, of what it means that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. And Every once in a while, I'll think about Miss Joy, and she was a she was a, just a worshiper. So when, when she worshipped, she was through songs. She was fully engaged, hands up, eyes closed, smile wide as could be. And I could just only every once in a while, I'll just think about Miss Joyce and be like, "Yo, she is in the presence of God. She has been worshiping Jesus face to face for the last four plus years. That is." Amazing. It's better, far better to be with Jesus in death for the same reason that to live is Christ. It's because of who he is. It's because of his value, his worth. And so it's only to the extent that we pursue Christ in this life that we'll see death as gain. It's only to the extent that we pursue Christ in this life, that we'll see death as gain. Otherwise, we'll see it as loss. We'll see it as loss. Now, there's a flip side to this that I have to say, which is that 
While it's true that those who are in Christ, those who repented of their sins and trusted in him, go to be with him immediately, it's equally true that those who have not turned from their sins and trusted Christ, when they die, will immediately go to a place of conscious torment. And we learn about that in Luke chapter 16. Jesus speaks in Luke 16 in this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And listen to what he says. He says, Luke 16, 19, he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things? But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so then he says, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them so that they also lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. But someone has risen from the dead. And that person is Jesus Christ. And if you have not trusted in him, the call for you today is to turn from your sins and believe in this Jesus so that on that day when you do depart this world, and you will depart this world, death has a one-to-one ratio, 100%. Everybody dies. You can either be with him in his presence with the fullness of joy, or you can be under his righteous, holy wrath, which is ripe for rejecting such a great person as Jesus. And so today is the day of salvation. In our text, verses 27 to 30, Paul basically exhorts the Philippians to imitate his example. And he applies it to unity in verse 27. And we'll speak more about unity in the church as we go. Um, But as we close, you know, I want to tell this quick story about a young lady named Melody. And Melody uh, was a Christian in Columbia, South Carolina. She uh, was a dancer, so she worked with a ballet company. And and Melody had a group of friends. She had her church friends that she hung out with, 
but then she also hung out with people from her ballet company. And the ballet, the people from the ballet company, along with their friends, were just, just partiers, loved to party. And, and Melody would take time and say, rather than saying, you know what, I don't want to be anywhere near those heathens, what Melody did was she would come to the parties and she just wouldn't participate in the sin. So she would be at the party, sipping a glass of water, just as joyful as ever. And Melody's group of friends did not treat her well. So they made fun of her, not only behind her back, but to her face. And so she got to experience a little bit about the sufferings that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, being rejected, distanced from, mocked because of her faith in Jesus Christ. But she was faithful to continue to come and as the opportunity presented itself to share about Jesus. Well, little did Melody know that amongst that group of partying friends, one of the guys who was partying was watching her and he was watching her example and he saw how she lived for Jesus and it was attractive to him. And she never even found out that the guy that watched her went on to become a believer, to trust in Jesus because of her example. And that guy is standing before you now, preaching the word of God. And I can't wait for the day for the resurrection to find Melody, to run up to her and give her a big hug and say, thank you. I give glory to God, to you, for your faithful witness as a believer. And now let's, let's toast to the king for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, it's true, we have no hope. We have no hope apart from Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, uh, help us that um, our mindsets would be gospel-centered, that we would truly be able to say from the heart, not just theoretically, but functionally, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, do this work in us for the sake of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.